It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, the Nature and Countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name is Fergus Collins, and I'm the host of the podcast, and I'm out in my front garden where I've got my veg patch, jackdaws overhead, sunshine on my back, and very healthy-looking crops of all sorts of things, from peas and leeks to courgettes, and just the very end of the broad beans, spinach, runner beans, a whole load of things, and it's an appropriate place to be, I think, for our current season. It's called A Taste of the Countryside, where we're celebrating food and drink, and especially those farmers and food producers who work alongside nature to enhance biodiversity and environment as they go about their business. We're going to be doing a little bit of foraging and tasting along the way ourselves. And in this episode, episode four, we're exploring the most important foundation in a healthy food system, the soil. And a look at my own soil, which is made up of years of compost. And I think how much love and attention has gone into that and the rewards I get back. But it's something as a wider society we often neglect to our detriment, to our peril. Back in early June, I visited a rather wonderful landscape on the edge of Dartmoor called Great Langerford Farm, where the manager, Tony Bayliss, oversees a stunning and incredibly varied haven for wild creatures, as well as a unique place study the power of soil. I met with Tim Harrod and Hannah Bowley from the British Society of Soil Science and we joined Tony on a tour of this marvellous place. Among the orchids and butterflies they revealed how focusing on soil could change the fortunes of farmers and wildlife for the better. Plus for me there was a slim chance of catching up with one of Britain's rarest butterflies, the marsh fritillary. How could I resist? Okay, so uh, altogether we've got 99 acres. Uh, this ground is up on the top, of the, this is up on the moor, so you can sort of forget this. We're here okay, in so the barn. 
So we're looking at some and, uh, I know they're going to divide it into three from the soil of, from the point of view of soil, but from the point of view of our management, it's really into two. So we've kind of got a horseshoe of Ross pasture wetland, and this is the marsh artillery habitat. So it goes right around there, right around there, and back around there. And kind of up above the, that, that's the dryland meadows. So this is higher and this it's is... It's slightly sort of, higher, yeah. yeah. We've okay. got um, a sort of corn ditch along here. And uh, uh, you'll see as you walk around, uh, this is an area of about six or seven acres of ponds that were put in in the 1950s. Okay. And, and obviously where we are now, the field we just walked down, is, uh, that's, uh, that'll be cut for hay. Uh, a late, we only cut late, obviously, because of the... Uh, the wildflowers, what have you, so... <laughs> well, I'm talking with Tony Bayliss. Tony, you manage this. Uh, it's, it's a, yes, I do. Is that your, your key role here? Uh, yes, I'm the trust manager, but I've worked here, I've worked on the land here for about 17 years, right, so part-time. Pretty, so. pretty well. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, um, it's beautiful, we've walked through a meadow coming down here, which is just absolutely divine, full of yellow rattle and orchids. I, I'm very excited about seeing what, what's, what is here. So I'm also here with Tim... Tim Harrod. Tim Harrod. Tim, you are a soil expert and a man of, a man of the West Country. Well, uh, uh, I've been in the West Country since 1965, but you can tell from my voice I'm, I'm, I'm not West Country. I'm what uh, is usually called a yellow belly, which is Lincolnshire. Oh, right, uh, OK. Uh, That's a, you're a long way from here. Uh, well, yes. So we're here to talk soil. Oh, yes. You talked about pits. Yes. What are, what are they? I mean, I know we're going to go and see them, but are they, well, just, are they literally... They're, they're um, hole, holes in the ground, about a cubic metre, that yeah. sort of size, yeah. which is a standard approach for soil description. And uh, It was always a great career for a young man when confronted with potential uh, in-laws. Well, what is it you, you do, young man? Well, I, I wander the countryside, I, I dig holes and I sit in them and I, I spit a little bit and I write a little bit and then I fill them in and it's time to go home. That was how it started. <laughs> I thought I'd do it for a couple of years and I did it for a lifetime. Uh, digging uh, pits, but also there's a map on the wall here, oh, yes. which is your map. Yes. Of the soils of Devon and Cornwall. Yes, yes. <laughs> and you've walked all of that and yeah. dug your pits in all so, of that. Yeah. That's incredible. Twice, most oh. of it. Yeah, yeah. So, at the very basic level, why is soil important? I think. Important. Well, because it's a, the medium uh, that uh, uh, sustains uh, pretty well all of uh, uh, terrestrial. Uh, ecology and, 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 and much of life. Uh, I mean, apart from what we get from the oceans, it's uh, uh, in the way of food. It's got to, it's got to come from uh, the land, from the soil. So and utterly fundamental. Yeah, and, and soils are so diverse that, uh, you know, uh, one place you can grow, grow wheat and, and other places you can't. And, and there's the opportunity to do all sorts of different things with that more uh, difficult land. So that's what we're, a little bit we're going to talk about. Yeah, different, that's different right. Soils yes, yes. But if soil is so important, why have so many people in, in who, land managers, farmers, why, why hasn't it been given the focus? It's given I, the focus. I, I think ev ev everything has got so that we, we expect uh, easy answers and, and uh, everything 
almost needs to be formulaic and, and, and straightforward. And uh, anybody dealing with, with land will tell you that the land varies in the first instance. And also, uh, it's, a, it's a constant... Uh, it's not always struggle, but uh, f farmers have, and, and people uh, making use of the land, they have to deal with the weather, and the weather is, is unpredictable and, and always variable. And climate change, or however, whatever form it takes, uh, will, will uh, make that more of an issue. So there's such diversity in the circumstances, and yet it's, it's, the soil has got to do, do a job. And industrialisation... Uh, looks for easy answers, and I'm afraid with agriculture you can't always you can't always do that. Well, I think the, pr the pressure for, for growing food as well from the Second World War. We've got land; we need to grow food on it. So the pressure was to grow a lot of food. So through the 50s and 60s, the use of lots of agrochemicals, lots of synthetic fertilisers <clears throat> to grow all that food. And at that time, like the grasslands that were ploughed up to make productive fields were grasslands, they had you know, sufficient organic matter, they were healthy soils, for yeah, a better okay. word, so, so they could grow that, their food and yeah. that carried on and then the, the population increased and increased and the pressure on farmers to grow more crops increased. And so that's, it's probably not that people have specifically ignored soils, it's just that the pressure's been on growing the food. And sort of as a bypass, well, the soil is able to grow the food in it, never yeah. mind. Take it's it for only, granted a bit. Yeah. 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 And then recently, there's that turnaround that people are going, oh, the, the increase in yields that we've seen over the last 50, 60, 70 years is slowing up. While we're still developing the crops in the same way, we're still using the same synthetic chemicals in the same way, what's going on? Oh, it's the soil. We need to think about what's going on with the soil and looking after that. I should introduce you. You're Hannah Bowley, and you are part of this, the British Society of Soil Science. Good. We'll do that again. <laughs> You're part of we, we are the Southwest Regional Committee, um, part of the British Society of Soil Science. Brilliant. So, um, and this is a particularly interesting site, as Tim has pointed out, for yeah. you guys to come and assess the different soil types. And, uh, and, and to use to show to show other people about soil. Because yeah, that's, yeah. what, that's what the British Society of Soil Science, part of our remit is to tell get people, people, excited. people who are not into soil to get them into well, soil. This is your <laughs> day. This is your day yes. in the sun, well, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the overcast yes. cloud. But uh, and very excitingly, we're going to have a look around, um, mm -hmm. hopefully see a bit of wildlife along yeah. the way. Whatever Do worms count? Worms definitely count. Excellent. But the audio for worms isn't quite as exciting <laughs> as uh, you know, when we find the skylark. But... Um, <laughs> Well, we could start with a, yeah, let's a visit go. to a pit where there's a, a little bit of worm interest. If you, <laughs> yeah, watch out, because they can spend the whole day in there. Yeah, we'll call it, <laughs> a, <laughs> no, we'll call it a worm cast. Um, okay. I think the thing to add to what uh, Hannah was saying is that in my boyhood, I worked on a farm in the school holidays when... I first went there at 13. He was still cutting his corn with a reaper and binder in the, in the traditional way. Yes. And by the time I was uh, 16, 
you've got a combine harvester. So, so what I'm saying is the rate of change has been phenomenal. Yes, yes. And, you, and you think... But this is a small heath butterfly. Yes, yes. yes. Pe Just people that. were still using horses, seriously, when, when I was starting on that. And uh, by the time I was 20, there were enormous great tractors available. Yeah, so things changed. Ch changed very quickly, and yeah. it's very easy to let things like soil fall behind. Plenty yeah. of uh, this is yellow, yellow rattle. Yellow rattle is wonderful. Yeah, we're just there walking through parasitic, this uh, meadow of yellow rattle, and there's other plants here that you can see. I mean, we pass some, obviously, the orchids. Are they common spotted orchids? What uh, yeah, yeah, mostly that we get the two yeah. of the southern and the common spotted. Okay. And they hybridise. Uh, anyway. So we're looking into a pit, and it's, yes, it's if basically. If you'd like to, if you like to sit there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Get a bit of shelter actually from the wind. Yeah. It's I, what I, was I'm it? Four feet dirt. deep, a meter deep. Yes, it's about. A, it's getting on for a meter deep. It, it's a little bit dried out, so I'm spraying it to uh, uh, moisten it so that it's. Moist colours show. Uh, all the time here, we're on the Dartmoor granite, uh, and uh, people think of granite as one of the hardest materials uh, in nature. But in fact, uh, when subjected to thousands of years of weathering, and uh, it it, uh, it softens up, and the so a depth of soil can develop in it. So here we've got different soil layers. We've got a, a topsoil here. Which is a sort of greyish colour, uh, dark, dark. Yeah, dark. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a good sort of 30 centimetres. Yes, 20, it is, getting on, getting on that. Uh, yeah. I noticed by what's crawling about on my hands at the moment, there are ants large ants, yes. No but then can, we have no a weathered subsoil yeah. down to about 18 inches uh, or 40 or 50 centimetres. And then we move into little weathered, deeper subsoil. So that's uh, not rock down there. It's not solid rock. It's a it's it's a broken up rock, and there are streaks in it which uh, come from the the uh, geological history of the soil. But essentially, this dark top suggests uh, a, a substantial amount of organic matter, and then the bright browny colours, orangey brown colours, uh, indicate that uh, it is freely draining, that there is, uh, that this is never, this is never seriously waterlogged. It's all to do with the, the uh, iron chemistry of it, that, that it's the iron that gives, that the, soil, gives it the brown colour, the that soil sort of colour, and sl organic matter giving this, this colour. Okay, so at the simplest level, that's the sort of, sort of profile. The, the darkness indicates that uh, not so long ago historically this will have been what would locally be called downland or moorland. If you look over at the hilltop yes. at, towards Chagford there you can see that it's uh, well with the eye of faith and believing what I'm telling you. Yeah yeah well I that's, have to. <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, that's uh, all uh, bracken and heather up there. Yeah. Uh, that's residual moorland, and for most of uh, the post-glacial, most of the, the last 10,000 years, this is what this will have been like. This would have been 
smaller does it? Yeah, so that, yeah. Okay. So, this so that accounts of... for the, the, the dark topsoil. Okay. Now, what's happened is that this has obviously been reclaimed for agriculture from the moorland, and because the granite produces a light sandy soil, it was very good for potato growing, and up until the 1960s, where potato growing changed from essentially a manual activity to a mechanised one, this land was used for that. And what happened to get rid of the acidity of the natural soil, lime was brought in and raised the pH. Yes, I've heard about this on Dartmoor. That yes, of this, it, it was really important in this area because from the point of view of growing potatoes, if you limed it and got the pH up, you then got a, a, a soil that gave you a very clean uh, potato when you harvested it. Yeah. The, the area had a reputation as a potato growing area. That is all gone now because of the mechanisation. So it's a big change. All these streaks down here are uh, earthworm channels. Oh, they go that deep, and, do they? Oh, so yes. This is like, yes. This if, is if the, if the, 40, if, 50, half, yeah, it's halfway down, yeah, half a metre. If, and if you go on, uh, it, you can find sites where they go much deeper. As long as there's not a water table, yeah. they'll go, or as long as it's not rock. Right. Rock and water table will stop them. What's happened here with this, top, this thin topsoil is that they've cast, yeah. and over the years, that casting has built up. So now, this is pure, well, that's partly worm cast, that top. Yeah, that is, that, yes, that, it is worm cast. Beautifully fertile. Now, Darwin noted this, yeah. uh, looking on some... Uh, Roman pavements. There was 18 inches of, of, of this sort of topsoil over the Roman, Roman pavement. So he, he said, OK, that's, that's about an inch a century. Really? Is that we, how things get buried then? Like Roman yes, that's, a, that's a lot pipe. of it, yes. So it's yes. not just sort of wind-blown material, no, no, it's the work no. of worms. And, and leaf litter adding to it and attracting them. How important are earthworms to our farming systems and the health of our... Well, they, they, they have to be important. I mean, in, in freely draining soils, they, they help the free drainage. And if there is a drainage or a compaction problem, then if you've got species of earthworms that will burrow down, then that has got to be a help in recovering any structural damage, any com subsoil compaction. Because from the point of view of thinking about soil and farming and sustainability, another benefit of earthworms, if we want to look from the other angle, is to say that... It, they can be an indicator so farmers and land managers who are interested in their soil can go and have a look and use them as an indicator of what's going on or even a hook to think have I got worms I haven't why not what can I do yeah. about it yeah okay. so do people understand that this is you know, from what you've been saying Tim and what you've been saying Hannah that they're, they're fundamental to the health of your soil and perhaps the productivity and profitability of your land I think it depends on the individual. Right, OK, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I work with farmers who are interested in their soil and they're interested in the, the growing environment in the wider sense. And we do have people who've asked specifically, how do I count my worms? What do I look at? What sort of worms are they? But of course, there will be other farmers who are still on the still on the page of, well, I'm, I've got crops coming out, never mind the soil. Yeah, so I think it, yeah. it really That's does, the... it does depend on the individual. So the... 
Right, we've come to another pit, which has got water in the bottom. Well, this obviously looks quite different. Um, doesn't have the same layers of... But you're going to tell me all about it. I'm, I'm going to tell you all about it. I think the fir first thing... You've got thing... a weird tool along with you. Like a sort of... Looks like something you'd take a manhole cover off with. Or well, a... it, it's... <laughs> That's it. it it's a pogo stick. It's, it's a, uh, a gouge auger. Uh, in the right circumstances, you push this into the soil, or in some cases hammer it in, it's about eight and it fills, with, it fills with soil, and then you've got a, 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 a ten-minute way of seeing a soil profile rather than this way, which is a morning's work. I see, digging, uh, digging holes. So it's a, in, but, some, in some respects, it's a bit of a guessing stick, yeah. but because you don't see as much. But uh, the thing to say about this site now is that uh, I hope you appreciated that as we walked from the other pit back to the farm buildings, we came down a bit of a slope. Now, the thing to know about granite is, although the, the actual rock pieces where you see them in a quarry or uh, a tor aren't porous in any significant way, the, the rock, because it, it uh, cracks and breaks up uh, and weathers, does act as uh, what the geologists would call an aquifer. In other words, it, it, it has some sort of a water table in it. It's not a perfect water table, but there is a water table. So in the lower ground, in what Tony described as the, the horseshoe of wetland, there is a high water table, particularly in the winter and spring months. There's still water in this pit. It's been baled a couple of times, uh, but in April uh, and through into May, despite it being fairly dry weather, the water table was pretty well to the surface here. Right, OK, so, so it's quite high, high water table. So, and and as, as you remarked, this is, this is a rush uh, buttercup meadow, really. Very different characters. Very, very different to where we've been. And the rush is, a, a, is an immediate indicator of wetness. Now, I think what has probably happened with this, this land... It was wetland with wetland vegetation until 1940. And then there was this organisation or local organisations called the War Ag, the War Agricultural Committee, that went and told farmers that they'd, they'd got to plough up the land because of the siege situation we were in and for food production. And I think this, this is certainly the sort of land that would have been ploughed once and they would realise... Well, well, we don't really get a crop out of this because we can't, because of the wetness, we can't work the land when we need to, yeah. and that's vital for, for food crops. So it's probably had one or two cultivations in the war, and then it's been allowed to go back to some form of grassland. Sort of semi-natural grassland. Yeah, yeah, it is approaching a, a semi-natural state. Is that a, some... bit, a bit of a problem, though, in some marginal land in Britain that oh, we're yes. trying to make, yes. trying to get... Yes, something else. Yes, something. Trying, and and uh, it's a real dilemma for people who've got to farm it. Yeah. But the important thing is that although the the soil material, mechanically, uh, in terms of whether it's sand, silt, or clay in the subsoil, will be very similar to that that we looked at before. Yeah. Thank you. Th this is much more variable in its colouring. You can see there are grey patches. They're sort of brownie orange. It, it, it's patches. mottled. That's yeah, that's the so point. It's very rough, sandy feel. Yes, to it. yes. Um, the mottling yeah. 
is an expression of the anaerobic, the anoxic conditions caused by the high water table. Uh, so the, the, the iron chemistry is, is completely different in, in, in wet soils. So it can't oxidise in the same way? No, that's right. So pretty poor for, for any sort of arable work. Oh yes. Uh, grazing land? If you time it well, then it will produce a decent amount of grass without, without doubt. But also, let's, let, hypothetically, okay, we've added the nitrogen, we've got lots of grass, yeah. we, we want to make silage. And we'd want to make silage as early as possible. Yeah. Uh, and when, when there's been some good sunshine on it to get, some, get the sugars up in the grass. But it's a wet soil and it, and it rains a few days before you yeah. You go to cut the silage. This ground will mark with the with the vehicles, with the forage harvesters and the trailers and so on, yeah. and compact the soil, squash it down because it's still moist. I see. So it's very easy to damage, and yeah. the same goes for grazing it with cattle. But cattle will compact and will poach this and com com compact it. There are many ways in which this can be uh, degraded. When this was full of water and came to bale it for a visiting group, we had to be very careful baling it because there were there were froglets in it. Oh, really? That they actually yeah. bred in here? Yeah, they? yeah. <laughs> so take yeah. advantage of even temporary water. Oh yes, yeah. 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 With the talk oh. about the economics and the current economic pressures, actually we're finding that because the price of fertilisers are going through the roof, we're getting more questions about what can I do alternatively, what can I use instead of synthetic fertiliser or how can I change my management. Yeah, so that's a positive outcome of this sort of crisis. It is, and yeah. I mean it's, it's, it's incredibly hard work for the farmers who, who de do need to make a profit and it's, it's making life very difficult, but hopefully even if a few of them discover these alternative yeah. <laughs> a different way, you know um, these alternative options and they might realize that actually we can carry on doing this and it is still profitable your inputs and, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah um so maybe even in the long term if things do sort of tilt back again at least if if, if a proportion keep going with these alternative options we might be in a better position so i hear a lot about regenerative farming and that is, seems to be a sort of movement <laughs> is that something on the ground you see, or is it more? Yeah. Magazines like. No, to talk it is. About? It is, and um, it makes me smile because. Um, is it's, it the term? It's a, it's a, it's a, yeah. It's one of these labels, a little bit like soil health. Yeah. You say, oh, oh well, I'm doing regenerative farming. Well, what exactly is that? And the, and different groups have different definitions. Very wilding. All these things can be sort of exactly. have, a, have a very broad. I guess they're trying to find some term to describe yeah. not using the, the inputs that... And you get people on Twitter who, who are jumping up and down about one thing or another thing and it's got to be A and it mustn't be B. Oh, sort of becoming uh, and, dogmatic about it. Yes, so. and, it, and that's just not helpful. I mean, it, it's not helpful to be black and white. Like Tim's saying, this would, would be a, a good ecologically valuable wet grassland, wet meadow but it's not good for farming. Yeah. Well, it, it's sort of, you know, you, you don't have to be a regenerative farmer. You can be a farmer who is profitable and 
undertaking management practices that benefit the soil or that benefit the wider environment. It doesn't mean that you have to be at one end of the spectrum or the other yeah. because there is that pressure to, to grow food and to make money and it is a business. Yeah. So I should say that these fields are surrounded by beautiful mature trees. What have we got here? We've got birch, oak... Uh, lot of birch, lot of oak, and the wetter ground, the willow just grows like a weed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, our ash are getting hammered. Are they? Because yeah. they've ash dieback. There's some beautiful ash trees in there. Are you going to just leave them to uh, I do their thing? Yes, yeah, because um, I'll cut them out if they're in danger of dropping on anybody. Yeah. And um, I, I did try where we had a few healthy looking ones and some bad ones i just cut the, them out to see if it would help the ones that survived i'm just kind of experimenting oh really. right i see yes and uh uh but but you know they've gone from some beautiful mature ones gone in three years from being perfectly healthy to completely dead, dead. So, oh my goodness that's so so that yeah you'll see them in there as we walk around you'll you can just See, have you got any resistant ones here at all? Well, that's what I'm wondering. That's why I thought, I wonder if it would help if we just... Yeah. And, uh, and also, you know, well, the deadwood, standing deadwood is always useful for something. Fabulous. Fair. But, uh, yeah. uh, you know, it is. Before I let you through the gate... Yeah, we've just passed just, another. I just wanted to point to the clarity of the stream water yes. on, on Dartmoor. Rather, rather nice to see cleaned. Stream water. Um, I don't um, often see it these days. There are not many landscapes where I, I would drink stream water, but I think you I'm not sure I would here. But this would be as near as yeah. I would get to it. This is uh, uh, that's, even that's when it's rained hard, it will be beautifully clear. Like, and why is that? Just because it's filtered through the granite? Yes. Yeah. Yes. What uh, you ought to notice is that there's quite an abrupt little bench that the, the gorse is sitting on the edge of. Yeah. Now, the archaeologists will tell you that this, is, this lower strip between the gorse and the stream is a, a, an area that was worked for tin. Uh, what what okay. they did was dig the gravel up and then essentially wash it to separate the heavier tin ore from the quartz and other, other materials much in the way that the you know the gold rush 49ers so they're in california yeah. yeah essentially it was a form of panning yeah, yeah. Oh, but, see, but yes. essentially we're we're looking at we're a small field a small hedged sm field small here. fields uh medieval enclosures the medieval well so me medieval field patterns here yes That's really yeah but even so there are it's very rich there are indicators i mean creeping thistle here yeah that's that's a good Dry soil indicator. I see. I mean, there are old stories about blind Devon farmer going to look at some land he wanted to buy, and he took his sons with him. He said, "Right, take me to such and such a field." And to their surprise, he got down on his hands and knees, and he was feeling. And what are you doing? I'm feeling for the dieshels, which is a dialect. Term uh, for is a creeping thistle. Creeping thistle. Oh, and, right. and they always used to say elm trees in the hedge and dieshels in the field. Good land. Good land, okay. No elm trees now. No. Are these your sheep then? No, we, uh, we don't have any stock now. We rent to a neighbour and he's very, very obliging, knowing what we're trying to do. Uh, he works with us very well. You can hear. 
Looks they're lovely. Quite, they're, oh, I was just going to describe, they're quite, they are woolly in a, yeah, like, like the balls of Yeah, the ewes have been shorn, but you can see on the, on the lambs, yeah. which are about to be. Uh, very, very curly, yeah, dense wool. Yeah, that's um, right. You, very, very pleasant faces, very kind of Yeah, and they're, they're very, very quiet. I mean, yeah. If you move them, you have to pick them up and carry them individually. Yeah. It's all right. Actually, some... this is the flock that belongs to the farmer's 14-year-old son, which is building up, which is oh, quite nice. Wow. Yeah. Look at this gatepost, granite gatepost, with notches cut in it. It's, it should it, have a matching yeah. one at that end. We do have a place where there is a matching one. Where, where the, notches, the notches will be L-shaped, yeah. uh, inverted L-shape. So before the hinge, people put... Slots, uh, slats or something. Yeah, rails in essentially. Right. Yeah. And, uh, How old is that stone then? Before the hinge, or something. <laughs> pre hinge, <laughs> okay. several hundred years, probably. Yes, yeah. uh, so we're looking into our third pit. Uh, yes, spider scuttles over a huge stone that's poking out. Um, so, what can you tell I think, me here? I think I need to uh, moisten it before we, we start, okay. but essentially, uh, we're back up on the, on the, the center of Tony's. Horseshoe, yeah. and we're back on freely draining soils, which in many respects are similar to the first one we looked at. But I hope your it looks a lot memory deeper. will tell you that the topsoil here is a lot browner. Yeah, and, now, and deeper. Yes, it is a bit deeper. The conventional wisdom is that rather than this forming under moorland as the first site did. This this formed under deciduous woodland, probably oak woodland. Eight or nine thousand years under woodland and then the settlers, the Saxon settlers moved in and cleared the forest and picked the freely draining soil as their, their, their arable land, hence the the medieval enclosures which are which are still here, which is un, unusual for uh, for, for England. Yeah. So we've got the same sort of arrangement of a, an unmottled brown subsoil below a brownish greyish topsoil eventually going into weathered granite and this one's a bit different because it's got some quite decent sized... Uh, is that a lump of granite? So? That's a granite stone yeah. yes I and mean, that, that is 20 or 30 centimetres across. A lot more small granite stones deeper in the subsoil but in general terms, this would this would be regarded as a broadly similar soil to the yeah. to the first one, but quite clear different uh, uh, evolutionary. So it's uh, deeper because it's had woodland on it. Uh, well, it's had co cultivation. I mean, oh, that yeah. I don't know what that is. Well, that could could be pottery. Oh, really? Or it might it might just be a. It looks like pottery to me. Yeah, it looks. It? It's certainly not granite. No, it looks as though it might have been fired. So that's, so that's medieval. Got, yes, that will probably medieval, may, maybe earlier. I don't know, but it's uh, yeah. it, it's got ploughed down anyway. Yes, it's, yeah. so, so that's interesting. So there's actual human objects buried thirty centimeters, forty yes, centimeters yeah. down. So yeah, it must have been a deep cultivation to get that uh, that stone down there. 
Uh, Do you know someone locally who can look at that bit of pottery? I, there's a county, there's an archaeologist oh, yeah. at Dartmoor. At the so park. you'll show them that? We'll show them that. That's see great. What... Archaeological finds. Live. <laughs> yeah, on. yeah, yeah. Hot from the pit. Podcasts. Uh, so this is the end of the horseshoe from where we started. And uh, there are some odd lumps of gorse and things. I don't mind those big lumps. Our butterfly counter, Hazel, tells us she often finds lots of the uh, butterfly webs close into there. They seem to like it a bit, so as long as... We keep a bit of the scrub. We keep a bit of the scrub. Well, if it fits in a chunk, but we do have to hammer uh, all the scrub from one end to the other, otherwise... In a way, it's kind of, I know it's kind of the anti-rewilding, because if we let it rewild, we'd have a, a birch and willow forest here, yeah. but that you would really lose the habitat. So we do have to do quite a lot of... Uh, uh, only in the winter, yeah. we have to go from one end to the other. And, and smash uh, the scrub up a bit. Smash the scrub, yeah. which we don't do with the tractor, we do with brush cutters. And we also keep these sort of hedges that go across, we keep them low because it's the other thing the butterfly doesn't like. Yeah. <laughs> going in, very, going very over high hedges. Yeah, it's a very fussy butterfly. And uh, I mean, it doesn't obviously doesn't look much, it doesn't look anything from an agricultural point of view, but um, my, I've got a new theory, which is my Dolly Parton theory of management, is that Dolly Parton says it takes a lot of time, effort and money to look as trashy as this. <laughs> and I say it takes a lot of time and effort to make this ground look as... Terrible yeah. as it does, well, well, to, get, to maintain the habitat for the butterfly. It's very, very. You've got some bracken there. You've got a bit of scrub. It's brushy. Bracken will hammer. Yeah. Soon, uh, we yeah. do try to control the bracken because that's we actually don't want that. But well, as I see, there's lots of ragged robin. Yeah, ragged um, robin, which is this lovely. I just described. It's kind of like a. It's very relaxed petals. I think beautiful. Yeah. Really, yeah. sort of beautiful. Big, wide pink. Yeah. Yeah, thin petals. Yeah, earlier on there's bugle. Uh, you can see the orchids again. Yes. I mean, the orchids really were confined to this area, and as you say, as you try to manage those other dry fields, they've just spread out of here, up, yeah. up those fields, which is a wonderful. Which, There's loads. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Excellent. There, you go. there is a marsh fritillary. This is the first one I've ever seen, not knowingly. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Look at that, it's so beautifully patterned, like a sort of stained glass. <sighs> Just in the wind. I was confident. <laughs> How absolutely wonderful. Even on a cloudy day. Yeah, good. That's, that's superb, I always love to, when a plan comes together. So the marsh fritillary's everywhere now. <laughs> it's a beautiful place, though. I mean, you said trashy, but the sheer... <laughs> I love it, yeah. Yeah, the sheer... Um, but I think a lot of people would think of it as yeah. that sort of old feeling of wasteland and, oh, yeah. it's not oh, productive. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. But the richness of the, the flower, the floral diversity here, and the kind of... Oh, it's lovely. Yeah. But it depends, it depends on your background and your circumstances. I mean, yeah, and if you need to make money out of it. Yeah, <laughs> or even survive yeah. from it. You're, you're, you're taking a sample of... Yeah, it's not, it's not very thick, but that's... So that's... That, so that's fair peat. You can see the, the fibrous nature of it. It's, it's only about 30 centimetres. It's not as, uh, as deep as some of the yeah. uh, 
wet spots or but it's just very much looks i mean it looks like sort of cow manure almost it's that sort of yes how, Tim, how long does peat take to you know, well, one centimetre of peat a year a decade well, a... no i would say longer than that i mean uh, some some of the thick on the high moor yeah. uh, which is ideal conditions for for peat. The, blank, the blanket peat in places is up to uh, eight metres thick and probably that has uh, developed over most of the post-glacial, so the 10 or 12,000 years, so it's, uh, it's a, a slow old process. Time. So when, when we hear of peat restoration projects up on the moors, it's a, it's a long, it's a long we're not going to see a huge amount of it no, in our no, lifetime. No. So another field of different character. Yeah, I was just saying that every field on the wetland has a just slightly different character. And uh, obviously there's a few more trees here. We kind of try to keep it a bit open. Uh, and that there is actually a lot of devil's bit scabious here, as you can see. That's, that's devil's bit scabious. That's what the marsh artillery relies on. Right, so it's, it'll it, flower later, will it? It'll right? flower, uh, yeah, in, a, in a about probably about another month's time, two okay. or four weeks' time. Uh, but that's the, their food plant. That's it. They lay yeah. their eggs on the back of a leaf here. Yeah. Uh, about a hundred eggs, and then they, they form a web over them, and they feed off that leaf. And so our butterfly counter, who counts the butterflies in the, the live butterflies yeah. in the summer, does a web count. Essentially, walks this ground. In a sort of zigzag fashion, and has to spot a brown leaf <laughs> in among the on the plant. And then, if you look underneath, you'd see them, and that's kind of their food. And okay. uh, so they'll have laid their eggs now, though. Yeah. Uh, well, I think they lay that. Yes, that some of them will, because they've been going for about a month so now, and we're very much at the tail end. I mean, we had a very high, a really good high count this year of yeah. 139. That's in sort of 40. Hazel's 48-minute count. Oh, really? That's good. <laughs> so, so that's that quite was... a high count, yeah. and that's just. Nice so you've got ponies here as well to do a... Yeah, that's, their job is to maintain is to maintain this wetland through the summer. Oh. Uh, and uh, the good thing about the ponies is they don't like devil's bit scabious. Or they, oh, well, they might good. like it, but they don't eat it. Do they keep the bracken at bay? They don't eat bracken. We do that by... I'll come oh. down here with a rush cutter and we'll oh, do that. Because we can only control it, really. We can't really annihilate it. No. We don't do any spraying. Does it have any ecological purpose? <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. It's amazing, isn't uh, it? Yeah. How bracken has become no, I just so, yeah, it's so prevalent in our... Yeah. Uh, the the uh, other thing that's happened while we walk around here, we walk by the uh, a badger set. Now, there's a, there's a good link between soils and, and the distribution of badger sets. They obviously don't like being flooded, so they tend to go for the free-draining soil, and they like this abrupt boundary yeah. between between. Uh, so they, they're going to they're going to dig their sets in this. Yes, in in, this bank. in, in, in there. Yes. Wow. How did you become a soil scientist? I came by chemistry. My undergraduate degree is straight chemistry. Yeah. And then environmental science. Environment as a. As a PhD, Masters or something like that? I or? did a Masters in Environmental Science, then I worked as an environmental consultant um, in uh, uh, waste management and contaminated land, 
which was depressing. Yeah. Then I did a PhD in soil chemistry. Um, and here I am working in agriculture as a, as a soil chemist, specifically. And an interesting career. Yeah. Sort of things. Well, it well, is. because rewarding career. It is, and it's, it's applied. And I always knew I wanted to be an applied scientist. Yeah. And the best bit well, about... rather than a theoretical yes, scientist. Yes, yeah. And the best bit about my job is talking to groups of farmers and giving them information that I know they're going to be able to put into practice to improve their profitability and the quality of the environment that yeah. they're working in. And that absolutely is. And when I, when I get feedback from people saying, oh, Hannah, I've had a go at that or I've been thinking about what you said or whatever, then that's the best bit because I know that by talking to one group of farmers, that could be a massive area of the country and actually there can be improvements going on all around. Yeah, that's really exciting. So you've got, you can see the, the impact of... Yeah, absolutely. Are there jobs out there? There, there, there are, are some. There aren't yeah. as many as there were, for sure. Yeah. But there are lots of places where it's showing itself as a problem that the... I mean, I'm in fairly frequent uh, conversation with... Uh, soil scientists working on uh, major engineering projects and and uh, there's a planning requirement to uh, make uh, assessments of soils particularly where say uh, uh, infrastructure's going through ancient woodland uh, and uh, the standard of reports that people are getting back from consultants and not shall we say what they should be. Yeah. Uh, I think if you blindfolded me and took me somewhere and to a ready dug soil pit, give me five minutes looking at it, I could talk to you about it for a Well you could long, tell us where time. tell us where we were in, in well, I don't know whether I could tell you where you were but where on Dartmoor. Uh, well I, I think you know anywhere in northwestern Europe, really. Yeah. I wouldn't want to try my hand in the tropics. <laughs> Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So that was Tim Harrod ending that fascinating insight into soil. And Tim is quite the most remarkable man, a man who's dug more holes, I suspect, than anyone else in, in Britain. And, and his knowledge of soils and how they all work, uh, just fascinating. And obviously, we had Hannah Bowley there also from the British Society of Soil Science, showing how once we know how soils work with certain crops and certain 
conditions, so livestock or arable, and teach farmers and show them how to make the most of the land they have. Really fascinating. And also a huge thanks to Tony Bayliss of the Langerford Farm Charitable Trust, who's managed that land so spectacularly. And it is the most, I could have easily spent hours and hours just wandering around among the butterflies, the wildflowers, the orchids were incredible. Talking about special places and wild and wonderful. I'm in the podcast studio with the team of Jack, Hannah, and also Jeremy, who is a the silent member of the team sometimes because he's he has the unenviable job of signing off the podcast to make sure there's no bad things go out. <laughs> <laughs> Do I count as wild or wonderful? That's what I'm doing. Both. 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 Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's an important part of the podcast processes. So thank you, Jeremy. Pleasure. Really nice to have you along today. Long-term listeners will remember Jeremy from a podcast that we recorded back in... January. January. Early January, January. when it was, my goodness. the ground was frosty. There it was, deep and crisp and even. And we, um, we, re- we were talking about music and the countryside. Long time ago, it seems. Very pleasant day it was too, though. Well, thank you. I had a great time. And if anyone would like to listen to that podcast, highly recommend it. It's number 133. Well, we've done over 150 now. So, Wow. Anyway, we're in the middle of our Taste of the Countryside season. But something's happened. I've got to say, something, something amazing's happened, which is why we've asked Jeremy to join us today. Because last week, while we... Uh, while we Hannah, we thank you for returning after your birthday absence. But we were also just... I was just about to go off to the PPA Awards, which are the sort of Oscars of um, publishing. So the podcast was up for PPA Podcast of the Year. And, well, lo and behold... Guess what happened? We actually won. And we were up against eight other fantastic titles, including two, uh, two or three from Immediate Media and Our Media, which are our parent companies here. But we won. And so, yeah, so, And it's the first time I've had a chance to say congratulations to the team here, because it's not, not my award. It's, this is a team, team gathering. So well done, chaps. It's amazing. And I had to get up. I was completely unprepared. I was all shaky and staggered across the stage, and I hadn't had anything to drink. Uh, and it was Tess Daly of Strictly who was giving out the awards. So she was really sweet and just sort of uh, gave me a hug, which was nice because that was quite reassuring. And, uh, and, then, and then we've got the award in the studio. And I can't hope, help but notice that something seems to have happened to the award between the ceremony and the studio. Yes. Okay, so there's got a bit of a chip in it, but um, that's because I had to dash for a train after the awards and it was a very slow train. It was just before a day of train strikes. So I caught the last train home to Wales. And as I stepped into out of Newport Station, I was still in my tuxedo and very painful shoes. So I swapped over my shoes, dropped my bag and the award hit the floor. And so in Newport Station at 1.30 in the morning, the award got, <laughs> the award got chipped. All that story just to cover up, you had a couple too many lemonades. <laughs> well, no, no, I then had to drive 40 minutes. I wasn't home till gone two o'clock, but uh, it was very satisfying. Honestly, much better to win an award and come home at two o'clock in the morning than not win one. So, uh, and that's, you know, that's a big testimony to obviously all, all of you here, but also thank you so much for listening and for the encouraging feedback we've had over the years. Uh, well, it's not been many years. We only started this in 2019 and... As I say, testimony to lots of interaction with you listeners and please. Well, that was one of the things that we were judged on, wasn't it? Like how our audience interacts with us. Well, I, I actually have the judges' comments. Mm. Oh. And the judges' comments were, 
The judges for this category were impressed not only with the content proposition, but with the innovative concepts used to drive user participation, therefore boosting engagement and drawing in new audiences. <laughs> Which I think is a jargony way of saying... We, we really the, like to just hear from <laughs> we you. Like yeah, to hear we couldn't from have done it without you. Yeah, yeah. Without, without you, we wouldn't have been able to show that we've got an engaged group of us that are all interested in the same thing, that all yeah. sort of come together each week to... Have escape into the countryside. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much for your input. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, so we are going to celebrate, but we're also going to make it work as well um, in terms of because we have, <laughs> but not difficult work. But every time uh, during the season of food podcasts of, of a taste of the countryside, we're going to taste things. And today it seems appropriate to taste. Victory. Victory. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very good. Yeah, yeah. This victory tastes particularly sweet. Um, but we're going to taste some, some, well, we're going to compare a French champagne with an English sparkling wine. Now, I know that's quite far-fetched, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a blind taste for Jack, Hannah and Jeremy to see if they can tell the difference between an English sparkling wine and a French champagne. Now, I chose two bottles that they both had, they were both described as having tones of apple and brioche. <laughs> I like <laughs> so, both of those things. That I, yeah, those sound quite good. I've never really thought of brioche and champagne going together, but why not? Why not? That sounds great. I'm going to ask you just to turn away so that you don't see what I'm what I'm doing. And there, you have to trust me, listeners, that everyone has really <laughs> they have turned away. We all could have closed our eyes, but we all decided to yeah, physically move. <laughs> Sorry, this is going to take a while. So That's right. I just hope this doesn't explode on me because it's been in my bag. Oh, oh, <laughs> I know what's happened. We can't look. <laughs> don't look. Don't look. It's got lively. <laughs> so this is a exhibit. A. Don't look. Don't look. No, not looking. I did say. Let's hope for B. Everyone, get your umbrellas out. So they've been in a car and then they've been on a bike. Oh, that's very different sound. Yeah, that's that's more stable. This one. I was about to say that sound is a lot less violent. Oh, we have. Am I allowed to turn around yet? Yes, you can turn yeah. around now. Okay. <laughs> So we had a bit of a disaster there, but um, so what have we got here? Jeremy, would you like to describe the, how would you describe that colour? They're both very similar. They're both very similar. They're kind of, yes, sort of strawy coloured, aren't they? There's not even a touch of green or anything like that to either of them. Pale straw. Pale yeah, straw. Any advances on pale straw? The bubbles in the A are slightly finer yes. than in B as well. Okay, interesting. A, finer bubbles than B. Would you like to try A to start with then? Cheers, friends. Uh, uh, cheers. Yes. Tremendous. Wonderful. Well, well done, Country Fire. <laughs> yeah. I'm getting apples. Quite apple isn't it? Yeah. Mm. I'd say that's quite delicious. So, apples, Jeremy, you're a... I'm really struggling with the old apples, I must admit. Oh. It's tangy. <laughs> I think the appleiness makes it taste a bit cidery. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you so could give me that and I would think it was cider, I think. That's the sort of girl I am. Yeah, you like a cider. <laughs> cider with Hannah is the book. But, uh, <laughs> Lesser known. For me, it tastes. It does taste very dry. I will say no, that. Really dry. Yeah, I think it's sweeter than. than okay. Okay. Really. Magnifique. Okay. Well, or, or magnificent. We don't know. So this is the second one here. Oh, B. Is this the one that went everywhere. Yes. No, no. This is uh, the, this is the one that stayed in the in the bottle. Cheers again. Cheers. Uh, congratulations. Salut, perhaps. Oh, I don't know. Peut-être. Yakida. Mmm. Completely different. Very different. Now, you see, with that one, for me, that previously mentioned apple taste 
comes much stronger across. This one tastes more like wine. Okay. Some more winey. Less cidery for me. Okay. Mm, for me, it's more apple which is so mm, weird. That is weird. I'm very, very glad that I'm not a professional wine taster <laughs> and being put on the spot here. It's really nice. To, I think this is one of my favourite taste tests. So you need to you need to make a, a judgment call on which you think is the f- a, a which one you like best A or B. So put a tick on A or B and then say which one you think is the French and which one's the English. I'm going to say A is French based on the size of the bubbles. A French and B English. And what's which one did you prefer? A. I think. A. Okay. So For that's me, what... it feels a bit softer, a bit more like gentle. Jeremy. I definitely prefer B. Okay. That's one vote for B, Which, one vote for A so far. As I say, I can actually taste it. tastes fruitier to me. I've got... I, I'm, no, I'm guessing here. I say I've got the feeling. What nonsense. <laughs> if I have to guess, I'm going to guess that B is the French and A is the English. Mm. One vote each. Jack, I you're f- going to be the decider then. So I think I prefer B. Okay. And I also think B... Is French because I think for that that reason of it didn't the first time didn't hit as hard. I don't know French. I feel like would be the the more gentle one. Okay. I think the bubble thing is a. Uh, I think that's a that's a red herring. <laughs> a red herring. Well, we're going to test red herring. My, next my week. thinking is because <laughs> France is just that a little bit further south, getting a little bit more sunshine, which is why it tasted a touch sweeter. But as I say, I'm my I'm, I'm no expert. So well, this has been. Very, very interesting. I'm going to shake Hannah Tribe's hand. Yes! Oh, well done, Hannah. Absolutely. Thank you Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well done. It, the, a was the French champagne was and B was the English sparkling wine. I think something about the bubble size was was, was quite a good one. I think... I got double bluffed by the bubbles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Double bubble trouble. Um, fantastic. Well, it, it, but this is just an excuse for us to drink champagne. <laughs> well done, everyone. Well done, Hannah. Well I done. actually think I got my round the wrong way, actually. Sorry, <laughs> I, was, I was right. Yeah. Why don't you have a second opinion or a third opinion or a fourth opinion? So one of the things we talked about earlier was how we've had lots of interaction with you over the, over the months and years. And one of the best ways is through our Sounds of the Week, which we try to have every week. We love it when listeners send in anything they've recorded, sounds, birdsong, waterfalls, rain dripping on leaves. And Jack, a phone is the easiest way, isn't it? You yep. don't need great kit. No, most phones have a free voice memo, voice notes app. You can use that, record a clip and send it over. My email address is editor at countryfile.com. Along with any comments about the podcast, we really like the positive ones. But, um, you know, we, we love to get your thoughts and we always try to read them out in the podcast. And that includes you, Jeremy. I know you've sent, you have you record sounds in your garden. And- I have tried, yes. Um, there always seems to be sort of some other noise which kind of gets in the way, like kind of teenagers wandering down the path and swearing. <laughs> that, and that that, kind of, oh, well, yeah. Okay. And then, you, then when you listen through, you'd have to edit it out and yes. say there was swearing at 44 minutes, 32 seconds. <laughs> exactly. But actually, t- distant sound of children playing is quite a nice sound of the countryside. <laughs> these, lot, these lot aren't playing. Oh, <laughs> oh dear, okay. okay. But I really like that incidental sound. Like, it gives a true representation of what it's like. Like, one of my bugbears is people thinking that countryside is this kind of like sterile place that's just full of wildlife yeah but like it's it's full of people as well Mm. and people using machinery people swearing a lot people kind of getting on with their lives so if if you happen to think that your area is too noisy then give it a go anyway 
And we'd love to hear it. Yeah, true, true. And and there is a sort of magic in dis- in, in, an, in a drone of an airplane on a summer's yeah. day or distant motorbike heading off somewhere exciting. We've had that before. One of our soundscapes had like quite prominent motorbike, mm. but it's yeah. it still gives a sense of space because you can hear it moving away from you. Like mm. it, it, it all works. Well, we love those. So please send them in. We look forward to listening to them and we will play them in future podcasts. So this one, I actually do have a sound of the week to share with you, excitingly enough, so you can see an example of of this. And it's from Peter Beagley. And he says, this is from a little bit earlier in the year. He says, here's the morning chorus I captured from my houseboat uh, on the River Lee in East London. So that's pretty exciting. It's an area I know quite well. We're right by the marshes and wetlands here, and there's a resident heron, nesting swans not far away, and cormorants. We once watched one wrestling with an eel, wriggling all the way down its throat, which is pretty cool. Pretty cool image there. Thanks, Peter. Uh, Here in this recording, I hear my first cuckoo in London. My mum remembers when she heard them in London every year, up to when she was about 20. And with the birds, you can hear Boudicca, our cat, queen of the boat. Thankfully, she's never brought any wildlife back. And he says, thanks so much for the pod, for the plod, in fact. And he signs off as at Peter in the pub. You can find me on Instagram, having just completed visiting 365 pubs in 365 days. Peter, please come on the podcast. <laughs> we need to talk to you about this. <laughs> this is brilliant. I did check out the Instagram. It's impressive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, and thank you for sending a photo of Boudicca, your cat. Nice to hear her making her voice heard in the, that little sound in that little sound of the week. Brilliant. That's the sort of thing we're after. So please send us more. So thank you very much, Peter. Brilliant. So there you have it. The wonders of soils and the magic and how they can change the world. Plus the joys of drinking champagne in the podcast <laughs> studio. And an English white wine as well. And an English, English sparkling wine. Well, absolutely. Yeah, that's true. Yes, we've got to get the terminology right or we, we get in trouble. Thank you so very much for listening and for supporting us over the past few years. Do listen next week when we're off on another adventure into the countryside. But for now, thank you and goodbye.